good morning. My name is Dave, one of the pastors here, specifically the equipping pastor. What does that mean? Just with uh, training, discipleship, leadership training, uh, life groups, connections, all the fun things. I really enjoy being here. Good to see everyone today. Hope you've had a great weekend. So have you enjoyed any good food lately around the table? Thanksgiving, Christmas time, it's just smorgasbord, lots of food, a lot, lot of life memories around the table, good and bad. Growing up, we'd get in the car, Thanksgiving time, eight or nine hours, drive to grandparents in Ohio, and we were 16 of us crowded around a two small table. It's one of those tables, uh, grandpa and grandma were at the head of the table presiding, and the uh, adults were closer to them, kids down at the far end, and like once you got locked in, like you, you wanted to be locked in, you didn't want to have to go up to get up to use the bathroom or something, because it was so tight that you had to get out and like, excuse me, keep moving, excuse me, keep moving, like one of those rooms. One memorable Thanksgiving, my grandmother, my sweet grandmother, was grandpa's spokesman, kind of press secretary, and she said, so quiet, quiet. Grandpa's got something to say. Grandpa's got something to say. And so hush descended and dramatic moment came. Grandpa paused for a moment and he said, it's probably going to be my last Thanksgiving. Next year, my seat's probably going to be empty. There was no like background, like I've got cancer or anything like that. Just kind of like similar to like it's going to rain at some point. And so it was quite shocking, really cast a shadow over the, the little bit of of festivity that we had. So the next year, when grandpa said the same exact thing, it wasn't quite as shocking. In year three, it was kind of like, hey, keep past the gravy. No, wait until grandpa's done talking. And so eventually, one of, the, one of his sons like interrupted him, like saying, would you, would you not say that every Thanksgiving? And kind of a super awkward moment, but we all survived. And it was one of those things. It was kind of humorous, kind of awkward. You know, we drive eight or nine hours, and looking back as a kid, you don't know anything better, uh, but, but now looking back as an adult, like, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of excitement, that eight or nine hour drive there or going home. It was kind of like, whew, we survived. Now, some of you, you know, your family get-togethers maybe... That may be foreign to you, what I just recounted, but your family get-togethers were just like full of joy, full of happiness. And I, but I'm sure also some of you were like, whew, we survived, and, and hopefully this coming Christmas won't be uh, too bad. No one will get hurt. So the Bible also has a lot to say. There's a lot of things in the Bible that ha- take place around food, around a table. I'll mention two and contrast them. The Old Testament, you've got a guy named Saul. Saul has a major anger problem. Three chapters in a row. He apparently always has a spear, like a physical spear, real close to him. Three chapters in a row in 1 Samuel, he throws a spear at somebody, literally. He gets mad, gets furious, blows his top, and he misses, fortunately, all three times. But I thought this week, like, you know, he probably found his mark with somebody here or there, unfortunately. He missed David twice. And then the third meal, you know, they're having this like pretend happy meal celebrating the the new moon or something like that. And his own son, 
he blows his top. He, try, he calls his own son a nasty name and then tries to skewer him with a spear. And maybe some of you, you know, you've been around that table and someone's got a spear. Maybe not a literal spear, but they've got a verbal spear. And they're, they're always packing it. And you just hope you're not gonna be the one that gets verbally skewered. And there's just that tension, that intimidation, that just be, be careful. I know at least some of you could probably relate to that. And why does he have a spear? Because he or she, just because they can, there's no one to stop them from verbally uh, you know, hurt, inflicting some harm on somebody. There's no grace, there's no truth, everyone's just trying to survive. I'm gonna contrast that with communion. Just a couple weeks ago, we were celebrating the Lord's Supper. Jesus breaks the bread, they're celebrating Passover. And around that table too, there's kind of this uh, somberness of everyone knows something is not quite right. Um, and no one knows it more fully than Jesus. Only he really knows that, you know, around this seemingly pretend happy dinner table, there's someone here who's gonna betray me with a kiss. Someone's taking some money and they're gonna, they're gonna have me executed. And all these other guys who are, you know, pledging loyalty and like, hey, we're all awesome, we're all a team here, they're all gonna leave me completely, utterly alone. In a couple of hours, I'm gonna be with a bunch of strange men in the Roman army who are just gonna be hating on me and tearing my flesh to pieces. But Jesus, full of grace and truth, full of truth, he says, one of you is gonna betray me and the rest of you are gonna desert me but he's full of grace. He holds out the special piece of the dinner to Judas. Like in one last ditch, you don't have to, to do the devil's work, Judas. But yet Jesus, full of grace and truth, does not let that family dinner go off the rails. He refuses to let it descend into chaos, hurt, angry words, rage, accusation. And so there's just uh, quite a contrast. What's your dinner table gonna be like this Christmas? So this morning, my, my goal, my hope for each of us is just that we acknowledge more deeply that we, em that we embrace Jesus Christ, full of grace, full of truth ourselves, that we receive it, we soak in it in, to greater measure. And secondly, that we, we have confidence that rather than just surviving our relationships or, or surviving a dinner or a family get together, that, that you can be an agent to steer it, to steer it toward full of grace and truth that for God to work through you. So let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for sending your only son that we might celebrate his birth this Christmas. Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth. Lord, help us to receive you more deeply, to embrace you more deeply, your, your grace, your truth in full measure in our lives, and to be ambassadors, um, vessels of your grace and truth in all the relationships and gatherings we're gonna be a part of. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter one, verse 14, you can follow along on the screen or open your Bible or your phone. 
It says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the word, it's kind of hearkening back to verse one. It's the second time, like we're coming back to a new thought here, but let's retrace our steps to John one, verse one. So we know the word is Jesus, the son. In the beginning was the word, Jesus, and the word, Jesus, was with God, and Jesus was God. He, Jesus, was in the beginning, everlasting, without beginning or end. He's always existed. Verse three, all things were made through the word. Jesus made everything, made you, made me, made the world, made the mountains, made the seas. And without Jesus was not anything made that was made. Everything comes from him. He's the source of all life, the source of everything created, everything you see. In Jesus, the word was life. The opposite, death, no life. Life was in him, and the life was the light of men. Now let's go back to verse 14. And the word, God himself, became flesh. What's flesh? Kind of your hand on your cheek, you can kind of grab here. If you grab here and twist it, what's gonna happen? It might hurt a little bit, because why? Your flesh is kind of flimsy, it, it bleeds, it, it sweats, it, get, it gets dirty, it gets torn, it gets wrinkled. The idea that the word has become flesh is so incredible, revolutionary, you're not jumping out of your seats because we're all familiar with it. But back in the ancient day, this would have been an absurd idea. Like there's God and there's man and gods are perfect. They don't bleed. They don't need to use the restroom. They don't need a tissue to blow their nose. They don't have bad breath. They don't have body odor. I mean, flesh is dirty. Flesh gets gross. Flesh needs cleaned up. It needs sterilized. It, it needs the hand soap. It needs a mask. It needs, flesh, you don't mix the two. In Greek mythology, what'd they do? I mean, there was no separation between those gods and men, except, you know, if you had, you know, if there was some type of liaison between God and man, you, you had like Hercules, who's like superhuman. That was the ancient idea, Marvel superheroes. Guy gets bit by a bug and he's just a normal guy and suddenly he's Spider-Man. Something extraordinary, or they come from other planets. Or uh, Captain America, I mean, scrawny little guy. He steps into this machine and he's yelling and screaming. He's being injected with all these fluids and he capsule opens up and out steps this like super buff, amazing, something more than just an ordinary human. But with Jesus, it's the exact opposite. It's like the son of God steps into the capsule and out comes just you and me. It's one of those verses that I think proves that the Bible is from God because no human being would ever say something like the word became flesh. Human beings think like Hercules, think like Spider-Man, think like Captain America, think like Iron Man, like it's human plus. The Bible is true because no human being would ever think the word became one of us. I think the application from this is that Jesus Christ, the word becoming flesh, it gives dignity, 
It gives a sacredness to this, this stuff all over us, the flesh covering our bones. Unlike any other species, you're made in the image of God. And it's, it's not right to denigrate ourselves for, for weight, or we don't like the shape of our nose, or our, our height, or um, we think we're fat, or we don't think we're very good looking. Jesus put on our jersey. Do you have a jersey of, of a favorite athlete, a favorite uh, movie star, or something like that? You, you wear the jersey with pride. You want everyone to know that you uh, kind of look up to this athlete or this person. Jesus Christ put on flesh and he dignified it. He made it sacred and he didn't take a shortcut. He didn't start off at 20 years old or 25 or 30. He made life sacred from the moment of conception, from the womb to adulthood. I hope you you recognize that, that your flesh is sacred that God himself put on the jersey, that you are priceless, and that he died for your sins and rose again. The word become flesh, and it says this in verse 14 going on, and dwelt among us. Literally, he pitched his tent among us, became one of us, and we have seen his glory. My son often comes to me and says, hey, dad, did you know this is true? And I'll say, how do I know that's true? How do you know that's true? That's not true. Yes, it's true. I saw it on my phone. I saw it on a video. Say, let me see that. I don't believe that. That is not true. Or I might say, there might be a little bit of truth in that. But here he's saying, we've seen it. I've actually seen it. I saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. When we're reading the Bible, we're reading an eyewitness account. I saw it. I saw his glory. I saw him teaching. I saw him do the miracle. I saw him multiply the bread. I saw him multiply the loaves. I saw him cast out the demon. I saw it. It's with my own eyes. I saw his glory. I saw his death. I saw his resurrection. He came and dwelt among us. It's glory. Christianity is unlike any other religion. Christianity is the only one where God reaches down to man. Every other religion, Islam, it's, it's trying to reach up to God. The, the good Muslim thinks, well, I can't be sure that I'll be in paradise, but I just hope my good outweighs my bad. That's why if I go on jihad, it, it helps me guarantee that I will enter paradise. Many people today in our culture live by this wishy-washy, uh, vague, I try to be a good person and you know, to get to heaven, I think that my good stuff is gonna outweigh my bad stuff, so I think you know, I'm probably gonna go to heaven. And again, it's the same thing of just like works. I'm gonna try to, on the outside, be as good a person as I can and, and hopefully that'll be enough to get to heaven one day. Christianity is unique in that God came down in the gutter for you and me. While we were helpless in our sins, no way to save ourselves, no way that you and I could ever be good enough, Jesus came down to be one of us in glory. Hebrews 4, verse 15. 
says this about Jesus' glory, his glory in becoming the, the opposite of Captain America, being in the capsule and being reduced to a scrawny human. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So when you go to Jesus, you're not just talking to someone who's trying to listen and understand, well, I kind of know how that feels like. When you come to Jesus, he knows. He, if there's no sin, there's no temptation that you've experienced, whether it's something you've done or something you've been on the receiving end that Jesus is not familiar with. You can have confidence to draw near to the throne of grace that you may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need because Jesus understands you. He really does. If you ever catch yourself thinking like, nobody knows. Nobody knows what I'm going through. It's not true. Jesus does know. He does understand you. He does know what it's like to be you. He does know to pass through the valley or the trial or the crisis that you're in. That is his glory that he actually knows, that he truly understands you. It is his glory. And going on from there, his glory, what is this glory? Verse 14, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth, that he is perfect in grace and truth. The word full meaning full to the top of the bucket, 100%, absolute, Pure, he is a pure substance. He's perfect, full of grace and truth. What is grace? Grace is like um, you're signing up as kids and you're like, pick me, pick me. And like, yes, I pick you. Even if you're not the best player, the best musician, I want you on my team. It's favor. It's that aspect of when you're on the computer or the phone, it asks you, do you want to set this as your default contact number? It's grace is God's default. He prefers to show pleasure. He prefers to delight. He prefers to have mercy. Exodus 34, 6, which is kind of in the background of um, verses 114, the first words, First description, first words of God revealing himself. He says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. And the first words you say about yourself are, are the most important. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God, who am I? Merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So what are the first words you use to describe yourself when you're, you're meeting someone for the first time? Uh, what do you like? Uh, describe yourself as an icebreaker. God says in the icebreaker, I'm merciful, I'm gracious. He could say I'm all powerful, I'm all righteous, I'm all, I'm all knowing. In the first words, he says, this is what I want you to know about myself. I'm merciful, I'm gracious. I take my time getting mad. And I'm abounding, I'm overflowing, always spewing up old faithful and in steadfast love and faithfulness. Psalm 103 verse eight says this, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and 
abounding in steadfast love. His calling card is grace. Is his grace bestowed on you. He, he wants to, to give grace. That is his, his preference. And he's, he's full of grace toward us. Goodwill toward men. Generosity, joy, pleasure over you. Kindness, the hope for your, your well-being, the desire to bless. Full of grace and full of truth. John 1, 14, glory is of the Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Truth has to be with, can you trust your, your map, your Google Maps or your directions? You punch it in, and once, you, once it says, uh, in 300 feet, turn right, then you're gonna make a left, and you have confidence that that is true, that there's no, there, there's no shadow about it, there's no uncertainty. It's not gonna be on the screen, but Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, will he not make it good? And that, that when it says Jesus Christ is full of truth, it's bedrock, it's solid. I mean, how do you feel when a friend, coworker, parent, father, uh, child says, I will be December 22nd, 10 o'clock, I will be there to meet you. And when they show up, when they come in the room, you're like, ha. Ah, Good, or I will do this. I will wash the dishes for you. I'm gonna get you a present. I will do this job for you. And then when you find out that it's been done, it's like truth. And then the more, every time that person says something like, yeah, I love you and, and you know that they love you, like it's that feeling of well-being, the truth, that it's something solid, it's something dependable. Full of truth, I can count on it. I can rest, I can rest easy, I can take comfort because full of truth, reliability, uh, firmness. It's solid, it's dependable, full of truth. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth. Do you know the, the origin of the word hypocrite? In ancient times, a hypocrite, any of you know, was an actor. It was used of the, the people on stage. Like when you're, you're playing a part, you're playing a role, when you're pretending to be on the stage and you're pretending someone that you're not, you are a hypocrite. It didn't really have a negative connotation at the beginning, but it became negative, like you're just a hypocrite. You're not living what, what you believe. You're not doing what you said you would do. And so with Jesus, full of truth, meaning there's no shred of acting. Every time you read a story of Jesus, he, he's being full of grace and full of truth. There's no hint of dishonesty. There's no shadow of he doesn't mean what he says. He's full of truth. His, the truth that I am a sinner in need of grace. The truth that I can always run to Jesus. The truth that he died and his death is enough for my sins. Nothing more is required. The truth that he rose again from the dead. The truth that he freely forgives. I could have chosen so many verses, but I'll choose one that has meant a lot to me in my life. Uh, Matthew 16, verses 24, 25, where it says, <coughs> Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself or herself and take up his cross and follow me. 
Now, I come to this, is Jesus full of grace and truth? Is he true? It says, Jesus tells me I need to deny myself, like say no to myself. But saying no to myself is really contrary, the opposite of what the world around me is always saying about live for yourself, put yourself number first, put yourself first, follow your dreams, do what you want to do, be who you want to be, uh, take care of number one first. But Jesus says, deny myself. So I've got to say, is Jesus full of truth? Is it really like follow him and not follow my own dreams? I mean, that's really the opposite of a lot of messages I hear in my world. And so at this point in my life, I have to say, okay, Jesus, I believe you're full of truth. And so even though it seems really strange, I will deny myself. They both can't be true. I can't, you know, follow my own dreams and do, whatever, do what I want to do and follow Jesus because they're, they're opposite. I put Jesus first and, and maybe he, he fills me with the dream that is his dream for me. But they seem pretty opposite. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now that seems crazy, but I'm going to believe that you're full of truth. And if I deny myself and put you first, I'm really going to find real joy and real life. So this book is full of truth. Everything that Jesus says, when he says, save your life, you'll lose it, lose your life for my sake, that's true. I say that's true, and I find strength, I find solidity, I find emotional health, mental health, life, strength, joy, peace to go on. He's full of truth. I know a few of you have, have chosen to just go right on, start reading the book of John, and that he's always full of grace and truth in all the various people that he meets and the situations that he finds himself in. So John chapter two, he goes into the temple in Jerusalem and there's bad things going on there. And what is full of grace and truth look like there? He starts knocking over tables, chasing the money, the money sellers out, get out of my father's house, it's gonna be a house of prayer. And so being full of truth and grace may look pretty fierce at times. Chapter three, he meets a Pharisee in the middle of the night named Nicodemus and says, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. You need a new life of Christ in you. He's full of grace and truth. Chapter four, he meets a Samaritan woman, an outcast, someone of a different race who's had four or five husbands and has got a live-in boyfriend and who's obviously uh, living with a lot of guilt and shame. And he says, full of grace, you can have eternal life. You can have joy like you, you've never known. In every person, in every situation, he is full, perfect in truth and in grace. The last part of my message, I just want to talk about receiving, his, his, receiving Jesus in greater measure in your own life, your own heart, your own mind, and also being an expression of it through you. I'd say, if, if, I, if I sum up so many countless conversations over the years, there's two walls that people put up toward Jesus full of grace, 
full of truth and say, no, I'm good. There's two different ways that we resist him. Resist his grace, resist his truth. Number one can be summed up as, I'm just too bad. I'm bad, I'm bad, I'm wrong. I've experienced bad things, I've done bad things. I can't, I can't, be, I can't receive the grace of Jesus. I can't receive his truth. His truth is, is I'm bad. You don't know the things I've done for too long, but the degree of the bad things that I've done is just too much. I've been too bad for too long. I've failed so long, I'm just too bad. And there's that aspect of I just wanna stay in my badness. Almost like the more I say I'm bad, maybe that placates God's anger. The more I say I'm bad, like it's somehow in a strange, weird, demented way, it it makes God happy that we beat ourselves up. It's a twisted view of God. It's a twisted view of yourself. And a lot of humanly, there's some type of pride at work there. I'm just gonna revel in my badness. Sincerely, just, I'm just bad. When we look at the cross, Jesus says, Basically, Jesus says, I don't care about how bad you've been. Just take my gift. How bad you've been doesn't matter a whit, a cent, a penny. It doesn't matter how long, if you just uh, are a little bad or all bad, my cross has done it. I did it for you. Get your eyes off yourself and how bad you were and just look at me and live. Full of grace, full of truth. Jesus comes to those who who insist that I'm just too bad and says, no, you're not. The truth is I paid for your sins. The truth is though your sins are, are, are bright as scarlet, they're washed whiter than snow in me. The truth is that God the Father looks at you and he sees my righteousness as a sermon from last week that God has given us his righteousness full of grace and truth. The truth is that you, you can't out God. Receive full of grace. All you have to do, Ephesians 2 says this, for, for by grace you've been saved through faith. All you have to do is believe and to trust. And this is not your own doing. You didn't earn it, you can't earn it. It's the gift. If you're putting up the wall of I'm just too bad now, or I've gone too far for God, I'm ruined, I'm forever, I'm beyond repair, just receive the gift. Jesus comes full of grace, full of truth, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And you can leave that that scripture up there. The second wall, perhaps even more prevalent, it's the flip side of I'm too bad. It's the I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad. I mean, sure, I'm not perfect, and I've got areas to work on, but... I'm really not that bad. I'm I'm kind of a decent person. I'm maybe right in the middle. I'm doing pretty good. And so the resistance is is just that I don't need any more of God right now. I prayed the prayer to receive Christ, but you know, I'm I'm doing okay. I'm not that bad. But again, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's like Christianity becomes a way of like, okay, from now on I gotta be 
uh, not that bad. I'm gonna, how am I gonna live my life? I'm gonna be not that bad a Christian. When, and, and it's like you, you, short, you, you only got halfway down the football field. You're, you, you stopped short that God, Jesus is full of grace. He's full of truth. And that we're all in process. We don't stop, we don't say things like, I'm, I'm not that bad. If, if Jesus makes us aware of an area of growth, we specifically, oh, is my anger need addressed? Is my pride need addressed? Is my selfishness need addressed? Like, oh, praise the Lord. Fortunately, all of us to some degree are blissfully unaware of ways we need to grow. But when God makes it aware, then we, we say, Lord Jesus, forgive me, full of grace, full of truth. Usually when we're, we're like saying, well, I'm not that bad, and we're just kind of like, we've, we've shut the engine down, and we're no longer growing, and our, our faith is growing stale under, I'm not that bad. Usually what we're doing is we're just looking at the outside. And we're failing to see that we're so corrupted, it, it's our hearts. Jesus says in Matthew 15, he says this, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. So a lot of times when we say we're not that bad, we're, we're like saying, like, hey, I show up to church and I do this, I do that, but you know, I, I don't really go off the cliff in my bad behavior. But how many of us, you know, oh, I don't ever have any evil thoughts. I never get angry. I never have lustful thoughts. I, I never like think of like envy or, or, or fault. I never engage in gossip or slander or saying a bad word. I mean, come on. Sin is, is much more a matter of our heart. Every, all those bad actions, they come out of our heart. Unfortunately, we don't act on most of them. Interestingly, the Apostle Paul, a man who really, if there's anyone who really helped walk the uh, embracing full of grace and truth, he said this about himself to his young apprentice in 1 Timothy. He says, speaking about himself, but for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example of those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. This is the very opposite of us when we kind of hit autopilot and I'm kind of not that bad. He has this attitude of, I am the worst of sinners. Objectively, of course, he's not. But Paul, knowing his own heart, He's most familiar with his own heart. He says, hey, I'm most personally acquainted with my own deficiencies. Most of us, I think we get hot and bothered by when other people sin against us or they do something against us, but he's of the opinion that I, I need to grow. I need to grow. Timothy, I was shown mercy so that God, you know, God's really patient with me. I think that's a really life-giving attitude for me, for you, that rather than see ourselves as, eh, I'm not that bad, but he really needs work, or she really needs to get her, her attitude. When we have that mindset of he or she, they really, 
We're not full of grace and truth. But being full of grace and truth means that I'm so glad that God is merciful toward me. I am so glad that God is patient with Dave Winters. I'm so glad that God is patient with me. I'm an example of God's really amazing patience. Unless we see our sin as personal toward God, we're never gonna really see his grace as personal. If our sin is kind of like, well, I know I'm not perfect, and you know, oh, I'm sure I do bad things, then we're never gonna really have much joy. But it's when we become aware that, you know, God really forgave me when I did that to that person. Then I, then I feel the joy, the freedom, the release. Because not that bad fails to recognize that all sin is personal toward God. He is a person in the same way that maybe your son or daughter says, no, I'm not doing that. Or your boss promises you a raise and says, no, I'm not gonna give you a raise. You would take that personally. And God is a person. And sin is against him personally. That your life was not your own, that you were created by him and for him. And that all sin, if it's to be properly confessed, it has to be seen as a personal sin against him. For example, King David in Psalm 51 says this. Now, Psalm 51, let me tell you real quickly. David wrote after he had committed adultery and murder. He had seen another man's wife indiscreetly, brought her in, took, brought her home, committed adultery with her, got her pregnant, got her husband off of the front lines of the war, arranged for him to be killed, his murder. And when he finally wakes up to his sin and bitterly repents, he says this, interestingly, curiously, he says, against you, O God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Against you, O Lord, I have sinned. Now, of course, underneath that, he had sinned against Bathsheba. He had sinned against his own family. He had sinned against Uriah. But what this verse teaches is that ultimately all our sins, the sins we've committed, the sins that we've been committed against us are ultimately all sin is an offense, a crime against God. All of it ultimately. That's why forgiveness ultimately is just from him. Because your brother or sister, your coworker may not forgive you but God will. And you can be forgiven always by God. You can always run to him. He's full of grace and truth. Just recognizing that all sin is personal against God. Therefore, it's healthy for you not to be vague about your sin, but to be specific. Specific sin, specific grace. As Josh had that, that good slide last week, general grace, in general, in specific grace, specific grace for our specific sins. Because verse 10 says this, create me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. This is coming to God full of grace, full of truth. What an awesome prayer to pray. 
Create me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. And verse 17 says this of of Psalm 51, because it says, because God, you're full of grace and truth, the sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken, repentant heart, O God. Again, Jesus Christ, bright light is our, our sermon theme. Never, ever reject a broken, repentant heart. If we say, I'm not that bad, sure, I'm not perfect, we're putting up a wall against God. We, stop, we cut off the flow of grace and truth. When we say, Lord, forgive me for that, create me a clean heart, we're opening wide uh, the, the, the flow of grace and truth into our lives. So the cross, when we say, I'm too bad, the cross contradicts us and says, no, you're not. You're forgiven. When we say, I'm not that bad, it says, yes, yes, you are. The severity, God had to send his own son to die for us. And the good news is that he rose again from the dead. And you can continue to grow in grace and truth. And this... Christmas around your table or in all your your gatherings at work or at home, you can be an instrument of grace and truth. God can use you to not just survive, but to direct and to be an influence of grace and truth. That you can be honest, you don't have to pretend, but that there can be forgiveness and grace so that your gathering does not go off the rails that people can relax and experience a little bit through you of the grace and truth of Jesus. So the, the last few minutes, just think about how God can be working through you. So many times, someone will come, you know, and they'll say, basically I'll summarize it as top 10 reasons why my spouse is a jerk. Let me tell you, and they'll just go on and on. Or top 10 reasons why my boss or my employee or this person is, and whenever you just go, I mean, it's one thing to be honest, but when you just go on and on, you are not full of grace and truth. And failing to recognize that, hey, me the speaker, you know, if I'm running down my spouse or I'm running down someone else, I'm I'm telling you that, you know, I've got problems too because I'm always under grace. I always need his grace every day. So what does it look like for you to come and be an expression, the people you work with, in the break room, in your neighborhood? What, what might it look like this uh, Christmas season for you to say, Lord, help me to walk in there and you know, those, con- those conversations are never full of grace and truth. How can I steer that, direct that toward grace and truth? Let's pray.